0: Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at mccormickcorporation.com.
1: Hey there, I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City here on WYPR, the monthly show that explores innovative approaches to Baltimore's most pressing issues and where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. This month on the show, we're talking about the future of infrastructure. What does infrastructure mean in the 21st century and how are cities like Baltimore preparing to use the American Rescue Plan stimulus funding for infrastructure projects? Later in the show, We'll look at minority-owned businesses and infrastructure projects, and we'll also talk about where cybersecurity and communications technologies fit into the conversation around infrastructure. But before that, let's take a look at exactly what we mean by infrastructure. Joining us now is Emily Sullivan. Emily Sullivan is the City Hall reporter here at WYPR. Emily thanks for joining us here on Future City.
2: Thanks for having me, Charles.
1: I'm also joined by Ian Duncan. Ian Duncan is a member of the Washington Post Transportation Team, where he focuses on the U.S. Department of Transportation. Ian, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Let's begin with you, Ian. The definition of infrastructure is literally a moving target. Kind of give us a sense of what we know as traditional infrastructure, and what the Biden administration is adding to it.
3: Sure. So, I mean, I think traditional infrastructure. I mean, is roads, bridges, railroads, subway cars and buses. Um, this may maybe not sort of traditional, but broadband has kind of fallen into that category. Um, then you've got like water pipes, sewers, water treatment. Um, basically, big built things that are generally run uh, by the public. That's maybe not the case necessarily for the internet, say, electric grids, things like that, Um, public goods. Uh, And then the Biden team um, proposed their American jobs plan, they call it, um, earlier this year. And they sort of took all of those things, but then they added in um, some things like long-term care for old people, Um, and they sort of wrap that in with what people are calling an infrastructure plan. Um, There's things in there like uh, electric vehicle credits too, which it's transportation, but it's not really built infrastructure. Um, And so honestly what sort of happened was republicans looked at this and tried to sort of say "Well, this is far too broad these things aren't really what people consider infrastructure and it was a way to sort of begin a debate about narrowing the scope of this plan um and and using terms like traditional infrastructure or core infrastructure to try and turn the conversation back to those built things
1: emily i know in the city the um folks who are trying to uh, decide where these dollars go. There are some plans in place. Give us an idea of what City Hall is thinking about for their infrastructure.
2: The city has $640 million to spend uh, from the American Rescue Plan. And there are no exactly firm plans in place. But what I can tell you about Charles is the system with which they're going to try to distribute this money. Uh, Mayor Brandon Scott is building this 10-member Office of Recovery Programs, and they're going to be the people in charge of reviewing applications for this money. Right now, those applications are open up to city agencies only, such as the Department of Transportation, um, but eventually the applications will open up to nonprofits. And the projects must cost a minimum of $250,000, so we're not dealing with smaller chunks of change here. Um, Now, the Office of Recovery Programs is going to use a rubric um, in order to determine who gets the funds. And that rubric is going to weigh the public good a project will generate, um, according to the Scott administration. So it will look at things like risks involved and available resources that they can throw at these projects and proposals. Um, But the scoring system is weighted most heavily on equity. So the idea from the Scott administration is to fund projects that are really going to bolster equity. Now, what's interesting here is that previous stimuluses the city got, they were really, really, they had a set of stringent rules attached to them. Um, the Scott administration definitely has more flexibility with this package than the previous packages. Uh, and in terms of infrastructure, the one you know clue we've gotten from the Scott administration is bolstering um, digital equity. So, things like expanding broadband access, maybe putting a stronger Wi Fi system in libraries that can expand out to neighborhoods. Uh, we are definitely waiting on some updates, but those are the initial conversations that are being had here in Baltimore.
1: I note that the city of Baltimore has a lot of public works uh, things on their agenda, like uh, stream mitigation, pollution, and stuff like that. Is that also on that agenda?
2: Uh, That certainly qualifies for the money. And my understanding, Charles, is that agencies are really trying to pitch the Scott administration on projects that are almost shovel ready, you know, things that can happen straight away. Um, And so environmentally friendly projects, the Scott administration is definitely interested in those. Um, And the other priorities they have spelled out that the mayor has spelled out, uh, firstly, is getting local Baltimoreans back to work. The second one is helping businesses recover. Um, and the third one is sending money, diverting these funds to neighborhoods and places that traditionally haven't gotten a ton of investment opportunities. So for example, Sandtown, Winchester versus the Inner Harbor. Um, so the the idea there is to spread the money throughout the city, throughout the Black Butterfly, not just in the White L and the traditional places we see TIFFs and all that fun stuff.
1: And I want to come back to you. This is a big ticketed item. A lot of this money is going to go to a lot of different moving parts. One of those moving parts is Amtrak. We just got word as we're taping this that they're looking at how to fund Amtrak. I'm going to tell you, for as
3: long as I've known,
1: Amtrak has been losing money.
3: Yeah, so Amtrak sees a kind of real opportunity at the moment. Um, And, uh, you know, they have President Biden in the White House, who's probably the most famous Amtrak passenger. Um, The Transportation Secretary, Pete Buttigieg, also a big train fan. And so they have been sort of circulating plans to um, upgrade the sort of northeast corridor, that line from Washington to Boston goes through New York which is um, really the core of their service and the core of their revenue. They want to make that faster. Um, there's choke points in Baltimore, like the, the Baltimore and Potomac Tunnel is one that they're now proposing to try and tackle. But they're also looking um, across the country uh, at new routes, expanding routes in places um, you know, on the West Coast, but also uh, in um, sort of Rocky Mountain area too, all over really. Um, And um, there was a hearing recently in the Senate committee where you kind of saw that this isn't just something that people, senators from Northeastern states really care about. There's some pretty broad support for um, giving more money to Amtrak. And there's a couple of bills moving through Congress at the moment that would sort of significantly boost um, the funding for Amtrak. As you said, uh, it sort of doesn't, stand on its own two feet, it does get subsidized by the federal government. And there was a bit of a dispute about whether the goal should be for it to sort of pay for itself and that that should be the long-term goal. And then you had John Tester, who's a Democratic senator from Montana, saying, you know, if you you want this service to serve rural places, he just doesn't see a way to do that without some government subsidies. And he was pretty keen to kind of support more money for Amtrak. So it'll be interesting to see what they ultimately do get, but I think that the leaders of Amtrak feel like that this is a real moment to kind of seize on. And
1: I want to also, and Emily, you can weigh in on this, probably the bane of our existence are the beltways in and around our area. There is a proposal in Maryland to expand the beltway, but I can tell you, I've been on all of these roads and they are suffering in immeasurable ways. I know a couple of years ago, Ian, when you and I were in Annapolis, we saw roads falling apart. Is there money in this bill to help not just Maryland, but other communities across this country with this these roads and these interstates who are reaching almost the end of their life cycle?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a big part of any plan. I think that's going to move. And so there's a sort of there's a tension between fixing the roads that we already have and um, expanding them and trying to sort of deal with congestion. The Biden administration's view and um, the view, especially of Democrats in the House, is like that we really need to focus on what we have and that fix those up first and p- put new conditions on building new highways and the sort of environmental reasons for doing that. That you don't want to just be encouraging people to drive and be putting out carbon emissions that way um but clearly you know everywhere you look there's a desire for new roads um, and we did some analysis recently that suggested that in some states that's really where they're putting a huge amount of their investment is into expanding roads um that there might be some opportunities to do that if um, a big infrastructure plan passes and certainly i think you'll see states um wanting to have the freedom to do that but if the Biden administration, to get its way, it would really be about fixing, but not just sort of paving potholes and, and the basic stuff, but sort of trying to redesign these roads that, as you say, are 50, 60 years old, like these interstates, make them safer, try and find ways to make them not be barriers between communities, which is obviously a huge problem in somewhere like Baltimore, but really every city. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see. I think there will be a lot of nuance in how that might ultimately play out. But in terms of the amount of dollars that are being proposed to spend, that's where you might expect to see a lot of it go.
1: Emily, roads in the city of Baltimore have their issues. I'm reminded that the Hanover Street Bridge, I have heard numerous proposals about tearing it down and starting over. Is that one of the roads that are high on the priority of Baltimore City?
2: Well, I think quickly. It's it's always interesting to point out that the state of Maryland maintains all the roads throughout the state, but the city Department of Transportation, they're the people responsible for Baltimore roads. So any improvements there, I think, would need to be funded by the city ARP plan versus the state. Um, and again, we don't have you know a final list of approved projects right now, but. I, from From my understanding, when the Scott administration is talking about infrastructure, the things that they've put forward really have to do more with digital equity and environmentally friendly initiatives. I haven't heard any specific road measures, although this is a huge chunk of change. It could be spread, you know quite quite a while. Um, i would be I would say I would be surprised if commuter roads for people outside of Baltimore, Are improved through this money Uh, because again the Scott administration is emphasizing bolstering equity and making the city more livable for people who live here, right? Versus improving roads that that lead out of the city. So that is something definitely to monitor, um, and I'm excited to share any updates I get with you once we know more.
3: With the ARP money, there's some limits on what you can do in terms of transportation spending, and so. One of the things that Republicans in Congress are proposing to do is take some of that money that hasn't been used and sort of repurpose it to pay for a sort of future infrastructure package. Um, I mean, I think it's also worth pointing out that you know nearly seven hundred million dollars sounds like a lot for somewhere like Baltimore, but once you start to look at these big infrastructure projects, you maybe get one or two or three um, because they're just so expensive.
2: Right. And that opens up a really important question for the city, which is, do you want to put out fires or do you want to choose to spend the money to improve the structural integrity of the building? You know what I mean? I think that the administration really has to balance like dealing with the immediate and severe problems while also leaving enough money to fund these projects. And Ian is totally right. Like 640 sounds like a lot of money, but it's You know, it's hardly 20% of the city's annual budget. So while it is a big chunk of change, they do have to be very intentional and very careful with how they're spending it.
1: I want to talk about um, truckers. Um, I've read several reports that um, truckers are getting older. And many of them that transport our goods across this country are thinking about literally putting a truck in the garage, if you will. Talk to me some of the ideas that they're talking about on this, that end, end about whether or not they want to, if you will, put an age limit on truckers and the types of trucks that they would want to see. Because I think everybody recognizes that the diesel truck, which has been the mainstay of transportation in this country, they kind of want to get rid of it. Am I mistaken on that one?
3: I mean, I would say there's two separate things, perhaps, but there are ideas about electrifying trucking um, and um, uh, potentially using hydrogen cell technology. It's tricky because of the sort of distances involved in a lot of trucking, um, having batteries that can kind of last that long and you don't have to sit and charge them because it's just money if if a truck is just sitting by the side of the road being charged. Um, And then... uh, this is probably quite a lot further off, but there's also ideas about automated trucks, you know, taking the sort of technology you might think of in terms of self-driving cars and either fully or partially automating trucks so the driver's role is smaller or potentially no driver on there at all. Um, But I think probably in the shorter term, you're going to see sort of in terms of labor and and effort to... um, create new pathways for people into trucking. A big priority for the trucking industry is to open the door to having um truck drivers as young as 18 be able to drive across state lines. A lot of people are kind of really surprised to hear that, but it's actually legal in almost, I think, every state but one. Um, you can have a CDL and drive a, a huge truck when you're 18, but you can't cross state lines. So In a big state like California or Texas, that's potentially a lot of driving, um, maybe not so much in Maryland. The Trump administration was looking at doing a pilot program. They've been able to get um, language about a pilot program inserted into a big transportation bill that's moving through Congress. Um, Obviously safety organizations and um, the group that represents independent truckers who don't work for big companies, they're really concerned about this. They think it will be really dangerous. Um, sort of view from the sort of big trucking firms is let's do a pilot. We'll have all kinds of training requirements. We'll have technology requirements and we'll see if we can do it safely. And if we can, then they're hopeful that this would sort of solve a big part of what they see as this labor shortage.
1: And I have seen several reports on driverless trucks. I'm going to tell you, it makes me nervous to note that there's nobody behind the wheel driving these huge double double decker not double decker i guess double y double what i don't know what you call them these kind of trucks what are people saying about that
3: so it's definitely something where there is interest in it the technology sort of often seems like it's sort of on the verge of being a reality and then as you get closer new problems come up um we've seen with cars and suvs they've been crashes, there was a woman killed in Arizona a couple of years ago, which really kind of led people to kind of rethink what's possible. Um Congress hasn't really been able to agree on setting rules and a framework for how to do this. So the sort of federal oversight is fairly limited. And what you're seeing is it's sort of Western states, Arizona and California, that are kind of letting this be tested out on the the car level. Um, I suspect given the size of the vehicles that were involved, for trucking that it's probably further off but there are some sort of reasons to think that you know on the highway that's probably one of the easier domains for these self-driving systems to operate because there's kind of fewer variables um but i think lots of people would have the same reaction that that you did that the consequences if a truck crashes are potentially much worse than if it's a car although car crashes it's not hard to kill someone either so um yeah i think it's probably going to be a while before you see certainly trucks that just don't have anyone on board um i think you could sort of see uh, a world where the truck is taking on more and more of the kind of driving task and that the driver is there um if there's an emergency or to sort of help once you get off the highway um so we'll see how that plays out
1: we're almost done here emily I want you to pull out your crystal ball. Are there any proposed infrastructure projects in Baltimore that you think we should keep our eye out for?
2: Based on indicators from the mayor's office, I would say the thing to look out for is expanding access to broadband services. Uh, And I should say, Charles, that if Baltimore were to hypothetically build a municipal internet, I mean, that would be insanely expensive. Uh, So I don't think something is large as that would happen though the city could choose to make steps toward that direction um and the other thing to look out for that mayor scott has indicated he wants to do has indicated he wants to fund these types of projects is making capital investments in public facilities that already exist so that translates to you know bolstering rec centers um, bolstering public parks, that sort of thing that can increase livability for people in the area. Um, so those are the things that I'm going to be looking out for, but, you know, like, like I've been saying during this conversation, um, we are definitely still waiting on a firm plan. Um, and that will likely be introduced in some sort of supplemental budget. So once that sort of supplemental budget hearings. Once those are announced, then we're going to be able to take a good hard look at where this money is going. And then we'll be able to draw conclusions about the direction that might take the city in.
1: And what aren't we watching that we should keep an eye on at the federal level?
3: So, I mean, I think, you know, in terms of just whether there is going to be a bill that will pass, there is a, um, Uh, There's the sort of long-term transportation bill. That's a normal part of what Congress does. um, And that will be sort of five years of funding. What Congress is looking at is sort of significant funding there, new funding. And then on top of that, there is potentially, you know, a trillion dollar deal that might get reached, which would be even more money for infrastructure. Um, I think there's going to be some things in either one of those packages that might have a lot of relevance to Baltimore. um, an idea that's sort of gaining a lot of traction, I think, in Washington is pulling out these old highways. You obviously have the highway to nowhere, potentially even 83 in Baltimore, um, creating some funds to allow cities to sort of either tear them down, build decks over the top of them, build new bridges, um, because that's really seen as sort of a way of promoting equity and reconnecting neighbourhoods. I think potentially new money for transit, I think that, you know, the idea of the red line has never completely died in Baltimore. Um, maybe with a new governor and new money, there's a possibility to bring something like that back. Um, so, uh, you know, that potentially there's just a lot of money. And a lot of that would, you could imagine, be end up in a place like Baltimore and have relevance for the sorts of projects that might make sense for the city.
1: That's Ian Duncan. He is a member of the Washington Post's transportation team, where he focuses on the U.S. Department of Transportation. We've also been joined by Emily Sullivan. She is the City Hall reporter here at WYPR. Thank you both for joining us here on Future City. Thank you. Thanks a lot. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City here on WYPR. We'll have to take a brief break, but don't you go away. When we come back, We'll talk about minority-owned businesses and infrastructure, and then you'll hear about cybersecurity and information technology as crucial parts of our infrastructure. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR, the monthly show that explores innovative approaches to Baltimore's most pressing issues and where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. This month on the show, we're talking about the future of infrastructure. Now, let's take a look at where minority-owned businesses fit into infrastructure plans, I'm joined by Sharon Pender. Sharon Pender is the president and chief executive officer of the Capital Region Minority Supplier Development Council. Sharon, thanks for joining us here on Future City.
0: Oh, thank you for having me.
1: Let's begin with this. There is a big infrastructure project coming up. Unfortunately, in the past, many minority suppliers have been on the outside looking in. How do we get them? to be on the inside and get the full benefits that come with these types of projects.
0: You know, I think there's the opportunity, but let's talk about, I think it's important to acknowledge why we've been on the outside and not included in those things. But traditionally the government has always played a major role in initiatives such as this. You know, when we look at the upcoming emphasis on infrastructure, we, you know, we look at back historically and, for example, in the auto industry, the government played a role um, with that by building roads, um, whether it was um, with um, airmail, the government played a part. So the government has always played a part in, in that. We have not, as minority businesses, been at the table when those those initiatives have been in this infancy, because when you look at those companies that have come out of it, they then rode the trajectory of those initiatives, of those industries over time. And we have just not been there. So here is the opportunity. And this is why it's important that we be at the table this time, because of the trillions of dollars that will, and, you know, and it will eventually, it's inevitable, that'll it be spent. We must figure out a way that minority businesses are taken seriously and understand it that we have the capability of being a player um, at this juncture.
1: I note that a number of minority and women-owned businesses are small businesses, and they will be, if you will, subcontractors. How do we make sure that these groups and individuals are at the table? And what are some things you would like to see happen?
0: When we look at some uh, across the country, some of the major infrastructure projects that are going on, I think about the Hudson Tunnel one. um, I think it's something like $20 billion, and that one is going to um, replace the major tunnel in in the New York, New Jersey area. I think there's maybe a 5% goal on that, right? When you look at who the players are, because Europe, Spain, those countries have left us, you know, left us in the dust, meaning America in terms of infrastructure, a lot of those companies are coming here and partnering with larger companies here and minority businesses or the smaller um, companies just aren't there at the table. So the question becomes, so how do we do that? Well, there has to be an intentional process or policy put in place to ensure that we're at the table, or you know, there's a level of sophistication, Charles, of minority businesses. We could take the same approach by partnering with another company that's um, an international company, bringing them here in order to to do some of this work as well. We, you know, we have the wherewithal in order to do that. So yes, if you look at minority businesses as a whole, there is a great percentage that may be in that small segment. But there's a level of sophistication with our minority businesses now. Some of them have grown through acquisitions. I think that there is a chance that we can actually bring a lot to the party.
1: Sharon, I've known you a long time, and you've worn many hats in our our iterations that we've been together. Talk about, if you will, what you've seen at the various levels from the city, the state, and the federal government, that you are able to assist the various minority vendors that you come in contact with. How how did you take your expertise and use that to help some of these folks who were like on the cusp, if you will, of greatness?
0: When I was, um, as you know, I was the first appointed special secretary in the governor's office of minority affairs. And then we took an approach, Charles, of Um, minority businesses, and this was mm, over 15 years ago, minority businesses or the minority business program was highly considered a subcontracting program. And we had to figure out a way of kind of reversing that. And at the time we wanted to do it without bringing a lot of attention in terms of lawsuits. So we created the Small Business Reserve Program, which is the first one of its kind in this country a state-level program, and at that particular time, and it has grown since I've been gone, um, at that time was seven procuring agencies, uh, the largest procuring agencies of state government, that would set aside contracts for small businesses. And that enabled the ability to create a class, if you will, of prime contractors. Because the truth of the matter is, we can't keep sharecropping, we have to own the land. And so, you know, how do we how were we able to do that? Well, that program got duplicated in some of the local jurisdictions uh, across the state, because the, the, again, the thing there is we have to provide the opportunity by which minority businesses can prime contractors. So that's kind of one instance. But the truth of the matter is, is that our programs have been around for decades. And unfortunately, there may be some programmatic changes in place, but the way that quote-unquote infrastructure of these programs are, it's going to be hard to position our businesses to to do the kind of work we're talking about in, in the future.
1: One of the areas that you have championed, if you will, is workforce development. And I know that when we get these kind of large projects, everybody's not up to speed. Talk about the need for workforce development, if you will.
0: Well, when you, there's a couple of things. One, it cannot be taken for granted that minority businesses, Black-owned businesses, et cetera, hire other minorities. And so the sustainability and the success of our businesses is important to our community because we tend to hire ourselves. The other thing, is that all all organizations, and we follow suit in terms of what the Fortune 500 are doing, are looking at the future workforce. And so if the future workforce isn't up to speed or up to snuff, if you will, in terms of being able to take these jobs, we've got to start in terms of preparing that workforce to do that. If we take the example of the infrastructure projects and... My goodness, you know, um, you know, t- tunnels, roads, bridges, high-speed trains, those kinds of things. Smart roads. We have to put in place some apprenticeship programs that will help um, us develop our own workforce, and that's why the workforce development piece is is very key. Sharon,
1: you have worked on information technology for a long time is that the new frontier for minority businesses
0: it's been the new frontier for, for quite some time but let's talk about why again uh, just looking at opportunities in the us you know we're struggling as a country we're 13th around the world in, in terms of where we are and in, in, with infrastructure and, and those kinds of things communication being a a big part of that when we look at the rural parts of our state we look at the urban parts of our state we are starving you know, for high-speed networks um, and those kinds of things. So, yes, in in terms of uh, communication, information technology, there is a void, but there's also the opportunity. But when you say information technology, and I say this, um, having spent about 25 years in that particular industry, that's a broad piece. We have to make sure that we identify where the needs are. Cyber security, I mean, we know um, that that is a void that, that has to be filled. And so what we tell our students that are in school, what we tell folks in terms of taking training to make sure that they are, you know, we used to always, um, people, um, we used to ch- change jobs, like in a, in a heartbeat, they talk about them, you know, the millennials now. Back in the day, when we were in IT, you would just change jobs in a heartbeat because you had to stay ahead of the game and ahead of the the technology. My parents used to think that I was out of my mind, but because I was always changing job because in order to to be fluent in that latest technology, which changed at the drop of a hat, you had to go somewhere that that, um, had that influence. And so you look at where, who sets the trends and what the trends are. I just saw recently that I think it was Google and um apple they're dumping a lot of money into the minority business community because we are you know if if america is 13th what do you think we are as as a um as a, as as a people and so in order for us to even measure up there has to be some some attention paid to um what we do and how we do it
1: Sharon, I want you to look into that crystal ball of yours. <laughs> and you always have been at that cutting edge. Tell us what you know and what we aren't seeing.
0: My fear is that the house is on fire, no one's home. We cannot let this opportunity pass us by without having a substantial position. And... What I see is that if we let this opportunity go by without demanding, and we've we've got we've we've got to um, rally all the advocates and everyone to understand that if we aren't at the table when this comes down, then that pushes us further and further back. And so, what do I see? Unfortunately. These programs for minority businesses in order to to gain parity have been around for over 30 years. And if something substantial doesn't change, we'll be having the same conversation 30 years from now.
1: That's Sharon Pender. She is the President and Chief Executive Officer of the Capital Region Minority Supplier Development Council. Sharon, thank you for joining us here on Future City.
0: Charles, it is always a pleasure to be in your space. Thank you.
1: Thank you. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. We have to take a brief break, but don't you go anywhere. When we come back, we'll talk about where cybersecurity, communication, and information technology fit into the infrastructure of the future. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. Today on the show, we're talking about infrastructure. Now, we're going to talk about where things like cybersecurity, communication, and information technology fit into the infrastructure of the future. Joining us to discuss that is Richard Forno. Richard Forno is the Assistant Director of UMBC's Center for Cybersecurity and the Director of the University's Cybersecurity Graduate Program. Richard, thanks so much for joining us here on Future City.
4: Charles, great to be here.
1: You know, when people talk about infrastructure, we normally are talking about things like roads, electrical grids, water systems. But where do you think communications technology fits into this discussion of infrastructure
4: i think in 2021 communications technology is absolutely an essential infrastructure for the modern day um it's no longer a luxury to have internet access or the ability to have a cell phone signal in your home or on your farm it really is uh something that everybody needs to function in the modern world so absolutely digital infrastructure is um, a critical component of any infrastructure plan for the city and for the country.
1: I note that we have, you and I have talked about this in the past, about the vulnerability of many of our systems to cyber attacks. What kind of investments do we need in the country to make sure that we're protected, I think it's
4: a combination of investments. There's certainly an investment in technology to make sure that um, our networks and our computer environments are better protected or well protected to make it more difficult for an adversary or a hostile actor or criminal from causing mischief. But I think there's also an equally important um, investment in education and awareness about what it takes to, to be a responsible cyber citizen in the modern day about how to secure, let's say your home network or to make sure that your smart refrigerator or your smart television isn't spying on you if you don't know about it. So it's a combination of both technology investment um, on the commercial side, but then also I think education and awareness, both for the commercial side, but also for individuals because technology does touch every aspect of everyone's lives.
1: Let's talk about the future for a minute. A lot of us know about 5G. First of all, can you give us a layman's description of what 5G is and how it's going to affect us as we move ahead?
4: Um, 5G, in layman's terms, is is the next evolution in wireless mobile um, signal, if you will. The advantages are that it has slightly different um, capabilities to penetrate uh, buildings a little differently, to provide greater coverage across a, a wider area, and make it more pervasive so that it can support the number of smart devices that are being used and will be used in the coming years.
1: I note that there has been a lot of questions about how the Chinese are into 5G and we're falling behind. What's our, what's our issue with 5G?
4: Well, I think the issue with 5G or with any um, prominent technology is that we want to make sure it's um, reliable and it's trustworthy. And uh, given the political tensions that have taken place between the United States and China in, in recent years, um, I think the United States is um, right to be concerned about ensuring that the technology we're using to um, build and establish this next generation of our information infrastructure is trustworthy. And that might mean things like using US companies, um, the products that we make here in the United States or with friendly friendly allies to ensure there's a higher degree of trust in the technology so that we're not building our future infrastructure on a vulnerable foundation.
1: I note that a lot of people are talking about AI as well. Explain why AI is gonna be a big thing as we move ahead.
4: AI is a big thing in, in several, I mean, you could do an entire show on uh, the pros and cons of artificial intelligence and the big data. Um, it, it's it, from the, uh, the business side uh, AI helps with um, developing new knowledge and new insight about consumer trends and individual trends, healthcare trends. Uh, so it's got great applications in the medical or the investment world, for example, but um also, economically, AI could uh, could be used to um, reduce staffing. I mean, if you can outsource certain functions to a computer that's supported by artificial intelligence, well, what does that do for economic mobility and uh, ensuring that people have jobs if some of those jobs are being um, replaced by, by computers? That's been an ongoing debate in uh, policy and social circles for, for a while now about the role of computers in computing. But uh, AI, um, has some benefits, but it also has some drawbacks. I think where we're gonna see artificial intelligence uh, playing a a greater role in the future are in things related to cybersecurity, but also um, information and uh, disinformation and things that we see around the political campaigns with uh, false advertising or modified pictures and things like that. That, That's where I think AI really um, is going to come into public focus and probably not in a good way.
1: I note that, you know, in this current COVID pandemic, if you will, the internet has become indispensable. I note that we live in an urban environment, but there are a lot of people who don't live in an urban environment and have to pay a lot more for internet access. Can we bring high-speed internet access literally to everyone who wants it?
4: Yes, but at what cost? Um, the uh, broadband companies will argue that it is from a business perspective, it's not practicable to run high speed Internet out into the countryside solely to bring high speed access to three households. Uh, the, the cost benefit for them from a business perspective isn't there. I would argue that from a social perspective it absolutely is there because that's where we're at as a society. So in the absence of having physical lines being run to every household in, in the country, we have to look at things like improved cellular connectivity, like 5G, that can um, not necessarily be a one to one alternative, but bring access, to, uh, acceptable access to people across the country, especially in these hard to reach areas where it's not economically viable to uh, to run a, run a physical wire.
1: Richard I want you looking at that crystal ball of yours that you often look at tell me what we don't know and what we need to know about infrastructure especially in your field moving ahead
4: I think about going forward is As we build out these next generation digital infrastructures, whether it's for the country or for the state or certainly for a city like Baltimore, um, are we doing it in a way that is bringing um, digital access, inclusion, and equality to everybody, to all citizens, regardless of economic status, uh, uh, income income level, uh, demographics, whatever, so that everybody is on a level playing field to take advantage of what technology as a whole can bring to us in the future. But it all starts with having the ability to access this information infrastructure in a way that makes it work for them. Um, You can't access a lot of our services today with slow internet, you need fast internet connectivity. So I think that's a good starting point. The other worry I have from a cybersecurity perspective, which is where where I come from, is to ensure that we're building out these digital networks in a way that provides increased cybersecurity at a technical level. So they said earlier, we're not building the next generation digital infrastructure on a flawed foundation that creates more problems that we don't know, yet know about.
1: I've been speaking to Richard Forno. Richard Forno is the assistant director of UMBC's Center for Cybersecurity and the director of the university's Cybersecurity Graduate Program. Richard, thanks so much for joining us here On Future City. Thank you, Charles. Before we wrap up today, I want to leave you with a few thoughts. It's clear to everyone that infrastructure is essential to our way of life. The battles over what it is, its price tag, and how it will be paid for will work themselves out. The business community often talks about ROI, return on investment. This will pay dividends long after many of us are gone. Investments made in the 50s and 60s made us the envy of the world. Our interstate highway system connected us. The funding of NASA may have taken us to space, but also gave us innovations we take for granted. Are we up for the challenges of tomorrow? Our simple answer is yes. Future City is produced and edited by Mark Gunnery. We welcome your feedback and you can email us with your thoughts and questions about the show at futurecity at wypr.org. If you want to learn more about some of the people and organizations we heard from today, or if you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit wypr.org. Dot org and search for future city future city airs here on wypr on the fourth wednesday of each month at 1 p.m and again at 9 p.m until next time for 88 wypr your npr news station i'm charles robinson for my producer mark gunnery and everyone who makes future city possible We hope your dreams of tomorrow become a reality.
0: Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat— more information can be found at mccormickcorporation.com.